Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Annalise Heinz, assistant professor of history at the University of Oregon. Prior to joining the UO faculty in fall 2018, Heinz taught for three years at the University of Texas at Dallas. Heinz's work focuses on the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality in American and Trans-Pacific history. Her current book project is Mahjong, a Chinese game and the making of modern American culture. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. So first, let's start at the beginning. How did you come to be a historian, and in particular, a historian who studies Trans-Pacific history? I think that the root of me becoming a historian that I can identify is really actually in middle school. Mm -hmm. I had um, an eighth grade history teacher who was an amazing storyteller. And now I realize some of his stories may have played it a little fast and loose with the exact uh, uh, accuracy of some details. But what that did was light that fire in me of fascination for the past, and the past is connected to real people, and, and really humanize these stories. And, and that connected, I think, to a broader interest of mine, of, of, of a deep um, interest in the human experience. And I think history is both uh, an extremely important way of understanding our broader human experience, but also very much an, a necessary way to be an active and responsible citizen of the world. And so I really, I am a passionate uh, um, believer in both the uh, excitement of history, but also really its importance and its civic importance. And so what about Trans-Pacific history? How did that happen? I was, um, I grew up in Southern California, which is a very Trans-Pacific place. It's a very, you know, it's actually, um, there was an article not too long ago that calls Orange County, which is where I grew up, the new Ellis Island. And in many ways, it's true, both as a place of, uh, a stopping place for huge numbers of immigrants from all over the world, but also a place then of Americanization in, in specific ways. Um, and so most of my community uh, growing up were either Asian immigrants or children of East Asian immigrants and from, from various nationalities. And so that was part of my milieu. And um, it wasn't until I got older that I realized how, how special that was and also um, became increasingly interested in some of the, the questions of the exchange and movement of people and goods and ideas across the Pacific uh, between the United States and, and East Asia in particular. Um, and, and so the year before I began graduate school, I actually lived in China for a year and, and taught English at Yunnan University in, in Kunming, which is the capital city in, of a province in Southwest China. So um, that part of your story is related to the work that you do, so let's go there. So <laughs> I mentioned uh, at the beginning that your current book project is a history of Mahjong and its significance for modern American culture. So first, let's start off. For those who are, do not know or who, who can't remember, what is Mahjong? <laughs> yes, fair question. Uh, Many people today associate Mahjong primarily with the digital game. You, you know, it's, it, in that case, for, for viewers who are familiar with that, they are thinking of that as a, basically a solitaire matching game. 
that is not at all kind of the the traditional game of mahjong. They used the same aesthetics, but mm -hmm. it's a it's a solitaire matching game. Mahjong is a game played with tiles like these um, that are so it's it's not unlike gin rummy in the basic configuration, but you play with tiles instead of cards. You play with four people. Um, there are variants that you can play with three or five, but basically it's really a four person game. And um, uh, there are now diverse ways of playing it that are regionally specific all over the world, but there is still this core uh, shared way of playing the game that originated in China in the late 19th century. And it's, once you, you mentioned it's a matching game, a lot of games that people play are, are motivated by competition. Uh-huh. But this is different, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, and I should add that, that I, <clears throat> this, the digital version is really the solitaire matching game. Mm -hmm. In this game, you are, you are creating uh, hands, um, which you put together with equivalently suits of different tiles. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, the, the competition or the motivation in the game is, is, it is actually a highly competitive game, but it's an individual-based game. So one of its appeals historically has been as an alternative to bridge, in part because bridge is a partner game, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that creates a certain amount of um, pressure mm -hmm. and, and uh, relationship um, conflict. And it, in Mahjong, it is an individual, every, every person is out for themselves. Um, and it is, uh, played across a range of stakes. So it can be a high stakes gambling game, or it can be a very low key family friendly game. But even then you are usually playing it for some kind of stakes, even if, even if it's pennies for the game. There's usually some kind of stakes involved because that makes that competition a little bit uh, stronger. So give us a sense of the large argument of the book. Yeah. Um, so. The book follows the history of one game to help us understand how individuals in their daily lives create and experience cultural change. And in this case, Mahjong connects us, it, well, in the, in the ways that people interacted with it and the meanings that, that uh, players and uh, newspaper writers and uh, cultural commentators interacted with the game. They uh, used it effectively to influence or shape ways of understanding American perceptions of Asia, um, the changing boundaries of gender and race, and the creation and development of American ethnic identities. And so uh, those questions run throughout the book, but the book begins in Shanghai and in, with the game's origins in the late 19th century and really follows uh, an, a cultural but also an economic story of its production and marketing and, and development as a trans-Pacific game that becomes an enormous international fad in the early 1920s, really driven by an, the American market. And that fad changes the game's meaning in China, too. Um, but in, so the second part of the book, the second of three parts, uh, focuses on uh, race and gender in the context of popular culture. And really looking at this question of what it meant to become modern Americans in newly self-conscious ways. Mm -hmm. And 
those uh, in in that fad, white women were dressing up in Chinese costume to play the game. President and First Lady Harding were playing the game. American celebrities were playing the game. Spanish newspapers in Texas were talking about the game. It was really uh, a a national conversation and experience. And um, and I can you know go into detail about what I think mm -hmm. that tells us about the making of modern culture. But in this in the 1920s, as them as the United States changes its place in the world and really enters this uh, full blown mass consumer society, this consumer object becomes a way to have many of those conversations. Um, and then the third part of the book is focused on uh, the uh, ethnic histories of somewhat marginalized or very marginalized groups um, and particularly focusing on Chinese Americans and Jewish Americans and questions of inclusion and exclusion that are really at the heart in many ways of the modern American experience, particularly in the construction of ethnic identities and boundaries. So all completely fascinating. Um, <laughs> Uh, most interesting that this game allows you to access these very large <laughs> yes. issues and questions. But let's start at the beginning. So, um, first, talk about how mahjong develops at the begin at, at, in its origins in China. And this uh, set is a Chinese set from the twenties, which it gives us some sense of what it must have been like at the beginning. But say a bit about the origins. Of sure. Uh, Mahjong evolved as one of many gambling games, largely male gambling games, in uh, the certain urban centers in China. It really emerges out of the area around Shanghai. Um, it does spread to Beijing in the late years of the Dowager Empress's court. Um, and it is, it, it is not of particular significance in most contexts. Most places in in China would not have known the game. It was located in specific urban centers. And again, part of a larger uh, flourishing culture, particularly in Shanghai, of courtesan houses and courtesan cultures. So Mahjong would be one game that uh, male clients could go, um, uh, spend money on uh, food and drink, and entertainment with courtesans who they wouldn't necessarily even be playing mahjong with, although they could be, um, but who would be near them during during the game while they're kind of you know also gambling to impress their friends or business associates. It was again part of this this um, uh, complex social world, and in the early uh, 20th century. After World War One, there is a growing American community in Shanghai, in particular, um, as part of this. Uh, Shanghai was a semi-colonial treaty port city, and uh, the Americans there, in particular, although they were following in the footsteps of the dominant foreign presence, who were the British, um, and and many of whom were very invested in these kind of uh, cultural distinctions separating themselves from Chinese, from Chinese culture and Chinese individuals, there were more people who are willing to kind of uh, uh, cross that divide and experience elite Chinese culture. And there was also a growing population of uh, educated 
Chinese uh, intermediaries who were playing this role between foreigners and um, Chinese business people and government who often had been educated in the West. And these kinds of connections, I think, is one of the places where Mahjong crosses over and becomes very popular in social clubs among particularly first Americans and then more broadly foreigners. Um, and a uh, there are multiple individuals involved in this story, but most importantly is a person named Joseph Babcock, and he and his business partners and his wife uh, marketed the game to Americans, first as a kind of prototype, actually, on Catalina Island mm -hmm. um, off California to see if it would uh, take off in, in the, Catalina was a resort community for the Hollywood elite, and it did. And so then the next year they launched a campaign to to uh, take America by storm, and they did. I mean, really beyond their wildest dreams. It became uh, a huge commercial success. And these, um, th these tiles then, you can see, they would have been hand carved in uh, Chinese workshops or their, by the end of the fad, there were a, a few large scale factories, um, one of which was associated with Babcock's company. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is spliced together cow shin bone and bamboo, which you can see here, and, uh, and then hand carved in a, in a kind of assembly line process. And this was skilled work. Mm -hmm. You can certainly see a huge range of sets of just exquisite, finely carved tiles with a large percentage of bone mm -hmm. versus a small percentage of bamboo. And here you have a kind of mid-range set that was very, very typical of this mass uh, exports that were coming out of particularly at the Shanghai area. Um, and here you can see, again, this kind of range of, of tiles and the designs on them. Um, but it was such a significant export that you see these really uh, clear economic effects, actually, of, um, of this particular good. Where Congress passes a, a tax law targeting mm. mahjong sets. Mm. Um, and uh, the price of bone, which was actually coming out of the United States, in this case, the United States was exporting raw materials mm. and importing finished Chinese mm. goods. They were exporting the bone because cows, of course, take a lot of natural resources. Their cows are not a, a major part of um, Chinese uh, food sources. And so with this boom in the production, they quickly ran out of domestic cow shin bone. And you can really only make mahjong uh, tiles out of a relatively narrow section of uh, a cow, specifically their shin bones. Um, and so the price of bone mm. skyrocketed, and uh, the packing houses in Chicago mm. would uh, would ship their bone out actually through Houston often, mm. and mm. then cross the Pacific and be made and and come back in the form of mahjong tiles. So tell us how this game in the 1920s. You've you've already explained that it becomes a huge fad, but it also becomes gendered, right? It, it, like Absolutely. most of the people that are playing it are no longer men; they're mostly white middle-class women and and often younger middle-class women, right? So see how that happens. Well, that happens, <clears throat> it, it doesn't happen right away. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Many of the people associated with the game in the beginning were um, 
uh, men as well as women. And indeed, like I was saying, you know, really uh, people across many different social and ethnic and racial groups were playing the game. But by the end, by the mid uh, 1920s, by the end of the fad, the dominant image of the player in, is definitely a, um, a wealthy or middle class white woman. That becomes this the, the association with uh, a Mahjong player. And I think that, um, so part of why that's, that happens in terms of race and class is because of the way it's marketed specifically to elite. It's marketed as a marker of um, a cosmopolitan elite society. And so that in, in, in this historical context is very much associated with um, white and uh, white people, and again of means, right? At least middle class, but associate this being advertised in the context of you know with your servants um, and and things like this. But uh, in terms of the gendering of the game, that really does uh, reflect who become the primary players of the game. It does become a primarily women's game, and. I, th I think that that is in part because of the ways that ideas of gender and race and sexuality all create and inform each other. Mm -hmm. And this is partly gets back to that very first question of why I'm interested mm -hmm. in trans-Pacific history because of the, uh, the ways in which ideas of, American ideas of Asia are already gendered and sexualized in specific ways where Asian men are seen as feminized or as gender deviant. Um, Asian women are seen as sexually accessible, either as this kind of passive lotus blossom stereotype or the Chinatown prostitute stereotype. Um, and those, because this was so explicitly marketed as and embraced as a way to experience Chinese culture, mm -hmm. it gets uh, integrated into these performances and representations of Chinese people as, uh, as experienced by and performed by white Americans. And so those uh, feminine and sexualized contexts then inform who participates in it. And for white women as well, not only do, do men kind of move away from the game, but women also explicitly talk about this as, um, uh, you know, the, even the, the words that they're using, these, these foreign words as part of the game can be kind of titillating or, uh, mm -hmm. or boundary crossing. So tell us a little bit about the way, and you've already begun to speak of it, but the sort of this performance mm -hmm. of Asian-ness through this game. So tell us like, the marketing or the, the imagery that you would see if you were looking at a, you know, a smart magazine in the 1920s that would have images of people playing Mahjong or ads for Mahjong sets. What, 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 are, oh, yes. what yes. was that like? <laughs> yeah, there are certain recurring um, themes. And it, one of the interesting things um, about the game, and I think that one of the ways in which it is a particularly powerful tool to help us understand modern American culture is because it holds these tensions and it holds these paradoxes. One of which is that it is a modern game. It's coming out of this very cosmopolitan milieu of the uh, turn of the century. And yet it is explicitly understood as an 
ancient royal game, and that's a really important part of its appeal. And it, entirely mythological. Entirely mythological, mm -hmm. right. Certainly, any game that uh, has ancient roots, right? This has, you can trace back certain lineage of mm -hmm. the game itself. But Mahjong was not a game that was played by what you'll see in many advertising copy as uh, the ancient royal court in the time of Confucius mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, any member of the, the kind of rabble who tried to play it could get their head cut off, right? Those taps into all these ideas of, and myths of um, uh, specifically Chinese authoritarianism mm -hmm. and hierarchical society. And so it's so interesting that modern, self-consciously, modern white Americans are obsessed with this game in a time of rising xenophobia, um, a, a, you know, the past several decades of virulent anti-Chinese sentiment in particular, although um, that has become less of a focus since the uh, Immigration uh, Exclusion Acts targeted Chinese in the late 19th century. Um, and there is this, it, at the same time, is uh, a, an era in which there's a lot of interest in East Asian aesthetics as part of Art Deco, but also I think as a way of uh, dealing with these, these tensions where you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can be a member of this imagined royal elite while still congratulating yourself on being a part of the enlightened modern world and actually being a, the leader of that world in your own self-concept. And this partially has to do with a, a view of ancient China as this elite uh, civilization, whereas modern China that's an entirely different thing from the perspective of early 20th century America. Exactly. And particularly you see in, in answer to your question about advertisements, a lot of references to Confucius, um, and who's, who's a kind of known and esteemed ancient Chinese person, um, the only really individual who is, who is widely known and respected in, in, a, in an American popular culture. Um, and so there, is lo there are lots of, of images of Confucius as or separately from uh, this images of ancient mandarins. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see even a, a more than once a kind of um, image of uh, modern Americans dressed in fashionable clothes. Um, so again, that kind of elite society people uh, hover with a hovering spectral image of either an ancient Mandarin or specifically Confucius kind of guiding them <laughs> on on the game. Um, and it is that that's one of the the predominant advertising images. So I want to jump you ahead a few years. Sure. <clears throat> so in the um, 40s and 50s, Maja becomes extremely popular among Jewish American women. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that part of the story. Yes, uh, <clears throat> you know, that's really one of the questions that started me on the project to begin with. Um, I was living in China um, and I, my aunt visited my partner and I who were there and she knew that the game was uh, played by her friends who were, who were Jewish women and she could understand looking around, clearly this was a Chinese game played by men and women, young and old, right, in public spaces and private spaces. And she's asking why, you know, why did this happen? And I, um, and what I discovered is that a lot of people have asked that question, but no one had done the research to find out. So the, the roots of that answer 
are in this 1920s uh, fad when it becomes a part, when the game becomes a part of American culture. Mm -hmm. um, and as we've already discussed, right, it's not just Jewish women who are playing the game, but certainly uh, particularly German Jewish uh, communities are playing the game in, in the same way that everybody else is. Um, and after the fad dies out uh, as a fad, uh, pockets of players remain. It's still a good and enjoyable game. And one of those pockets were uh, Jewish women in the New York area. And these uh, few individuals connect to each other. And uh, one of whom, Dorothy Meyerson, had already been uh, cultivating her own business trying to promote what she called a streamlined, in a very 1930s word, streamlined version of the game. And she's one of these key players who helps create the National Mahjong League. And the National Mahjong League then forms in the late 1930s, and its mission is to standardize the game and bring it back into popularity. And they never, this is a time of virulent anti-Semitism, they never, talk about themselves as a Jewish women's organization. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it is their connection to Jewish women's networks that really does bring the game back into popularity. And in fact, create over time, create a, a whole new way of playing the game. Mm -hmm. um, and during World War II, you know, they're slowly uh, growing as an organization. Um, and they advertise the game as a philanthropic, patriotic fundraising tool that you can, you in various ways, you can um, have the game in, in, uh, serve as a fundraiser. And it's really after the war when you see the, uh, the significant demographic changes for Jewish Americans of entering the middle class en masse, of uh, developing what had been a relatively small uh, uh, leisure landscape of the Catskill Mountains um, into an incredible uh, cultural force, actually, that, brought, that brings millions of people through it every year and really becomes a, a connective uh, uh, locus for what will become a national Jewish American culture that becomes localized um, and mapped onto a geography of disproportionately, though not exclusively, middle-class homes on a range of suburban or semi-urban semi landscapes. And in that process, Jewish Americans are both uh, confronting the possibility of assimilation into Christian America, which is uh, concerning, and is also, they are also uh, disproportionately participating in the 1950s culture of uh, women who were also high, disproportionately highly educated, mm -hmm. um, leaving the workforce once they had children, and they were dislocated from their other family and community networks. And Mahjong becomes a very important and powerful and ubiquitous way to create communities in these new communities that also, though I'm not arguing this uh, happened at all consciously, but it also served to create specifically Jewish cultural markers in a completely secular context. Okay, <clears throat> we've just got about a minute left. Okay. 
Final question, completely fascinating. I'd love to have <laughs> you back to talk about more, more things. Um, when, when are we going to get this book? When is it going to be available <laughs> to buy? Well, hopefully sooner rather than later. It is currently out to readers, um, expert readers in the field, and I plan to uh, use their feedback to, to make revisions on it this spring. And I can't say yet what the, how extensive those revisions will be because that will be based on their feedback. Um, but I am I'm eager and excited to get it out into the, the world. And I also want to return it to the people who have been so generous in letting me interview them. Mm -hmm. I want to share it with them, too. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. We look forward to its publication. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Annalise Heinz, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Her current book project is Mahjong, A Chinese Game and the Making of Modern American Culture. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.